Romans chapter 9, verse 30. As it's on. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read the last three verses of the chapter. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, it, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Paul starts out here with, what shall we say then? What shall we say to what? I mean, obviously there's something that happened before this that's bringing Paul... Here's, here's, what, here's the problem Paul had. There was an ache in his heart. You know why? He looked at the church, even the one he was writing to at Rome. He looked at the church at Corinth. He looked at the church at Philadelphia, the church at Philippi, the church at Berea, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Ephesus, and many of the others. He looked at these churches, and you know what he saw? They were filled primarily with Gentiles. Now, he rejoiced in that. He did. But you know what? There were only very few Jews. He sees the Gentiles being called to the very salvation that was promised to Israel. While Israel itself was largely failing to lay hold of what had been promised to Israel. The whole of chapter 9, all the way up to where we've come, has been dealing with why this is. And why is it? Why is it? Verse 18 really sums it up. The Lord has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. And here's the thing. If mostly Gentiles are being saved, it's because God is choosing to have mercy on mostly Gentiles. And if few Jews are being saved, it's because God is hardening most of them. And the thing about it is, that it's not like this should have caught anybody by surprise. Because this is exactly what the Old Testament Scriptures foretold would happen. Is it not? Verses 26 and 27. The Gentiles, who were not God's people, are now being called the sons of the living God. Well, verse 27, the Jews only are seeing a remnant saved. It's exactly according to the Lord's will. Exactly according to His plans. So here it is. One reason 
as to why there are many Gentiles in the churches, both back then and now, it hasn't changed today. One of the reasons that that is so is in order that God's purpose of election might stand. That's verse 11. At this time, God has chosen to save many Gentiles, and He has not chosen to save many Jews. So that's one reason as to why only some Jews, many Gentiles, are being saved. But you know what? Now we find ourselves at verse 30. And Paul is saying, what shall we say then? You know what? He's not dropping this thing yet. It's because Paul has a second answer as to why few Jews and many Gentiles are being saved. What's the second answer? Look at the text. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And right there is exactly the reason the Gentiles are being included. They've attained righteousness. 31. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. There's the reason they're not being included. They have not attained righteousness. Now hold it right here. Make sure you see this. You all really need to grasp this. Here in Romans 9, Paul has been telling us why people get saved. Why do they? Because of God's unconditional election. He shows mercy on whomever He wills. Only those get saved whom God chooses and calls. God alone is the decisive cause of that. But even though that's true, Paul comes in right here at Romans 9.30 and says this, Absolutely no one will ever get saved unless they attain righteousness. And that's another reason why the Gentiles are being saved and not the Jews. The Gentiles have attained righteousness. The Jews have not. And the Gentiles... Now look, he's not saying all Gentiles have. And he's not saying that all Jews haven't. But most that are being saved are Gentiles and most of the Jews are not attaining this righteousness. The Gentiles obtained it by faith in Jesus Christ, while the Jews have stumbled over Christ and sought righteousness through the keeping of the law. But they never attained to the righteousness of the law. Now here are two truths. You've got you to take both of these. Election on the one hand, and righteousness by faith on the other. Both are necessary. Neither contradict or negate the other. God elects, and I must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to attain righteousness. I have a personal human responsibility here. Paul has no hesitation whatsoever right in the same chapter of the Bible to teach that men are saved by God's electing grace 
choosing whomever He wills. And at the very same time, men are saved by exercising faith in Jesus Christ. Someone once asked Spurgeon how he reconciled God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And as many of you know, and you've heard it before and come across this quote, he responded with, I never try to reconcile them. Friends don't need to be reconciled. So be sure that you keep these two things together. Unconditional election, it's biblical, folks. Election is biblical. And the attaining of righteousness by faith. Now here's the thing. When God unconditionally chooses to save an unworthy sinner like you or like me, save us from His wrath, save us from hell, save us from the power of sin, to be His child forever, to be there and bask in His presence, to look on His face, to enjoy that eternal fellowship. You can't be there if you've got the single slightest defilement. You can't. God will not tolerate that. If anything with the slightest impurity approaches Him, He will destroy it. You must be punished. Scripture says He's of purer eyes than to behold evil. And He cannot look on wickedness. The only one, the only one who will ever stand before God without being destroyed is only the person who attains to a perfect. Now, I'm not talking about doing as well as you can. The only one who will stand in His presence is the one who is perfect in righteousness. Now, this really brings us to the heart of what it means to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? Some say, well, it means I'm not going to hell. I mean, that's part of it. Some say, doesn't it have something to do with me being good? Doesn't it have something to do with going to church? Some people might say, well, you know, maybe there's something about baptism that fits in there. Oftentimes, forgiveness of sins. Or doesn't it have something to do with Jesus? It means heaven's in my future. Someone else might say, "Um, it, it means I get right with God. I mean, people have all... The term saved conjures up a lot of images in people's minds. What does it mean to be saved? What is at the heart of it? Notice what Paul's saying in these three verses. Being saved, the heart of it, the essence of it, is that you have attained righteousness before God. Now notice the word attained. There is a attained. I I have seized it. I've achieved it. I've come up to it. I measure up. There's an attaining. There's a standard. And that standard is perfect righteousness. And the Gentiles, these Gentiles, think of the Corinthians. Think of these people. They're going to their their temples and the, the prostitutes are there. And they're just full of all sorts of darkness and defilement, worshiping their stupid, dumb idols that 
we find out all that's behind those things are demons. Since you can't sit at the table of the Lord and the table of... They were sitting at the table of demons in this thing. They were worshiping in, in dark, wicked, full of all their corruption, sacrificing children, some of them, living in darkness, all sorts of horrible sin. And you know what Paul says? With all that in their past, somehow, they got to the place of righteousness. They attained it. Now look, it doesn't say they got converted into a lifestyle where they began to try to attain it. It's not like when you become a Christian, well, you know, a lot of people have this idea. You can become a Christian, i got to clean my life up. i got to get right with God. i got to start doing good. It doesn't say they tried to attain it. It said they did attain it. They came up. They measured up. They got there. By faith, they did attain it. Past tense. Achieved. Now maybe you picked up on the fact that I said they obtained perfect righteousness. Perfect Somebody saying, somebody right now is in here saying to yourself, wait a second. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. You say, how can that even be? No one's perfect. Don't we love to say that? Don't you hear that all the time? No one's perfect. You hold on just a second. I know people love to say that. We hear that all the time. No one's perfect. But can I tell you something? In a very real sense, every single true child of God in this room is exactly perfect in righteousness. Everyone who has truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ has attained a perfect righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. The very heart of the Gospel and being saved is that you have attained. By faith, you do attain to an absolute, a perfect, a sinless, flawless, spotless, pristine, pure righteousness whereby in the high courts of heaven no accusation can ever come against you. None. Not even from God Himself. Not for the slightest little defilement or curve from His law. You are perfect in His sight. That is absolutely, fundamentally, at the heart of the Gospel. There's a standard. Now imagine it like this. Imagine this. As I was studying, I just I, I got I kept I kept thinking about David in in the Psalm and him saying that the, the commandments he he's he's thinking about things that are perfect and he says I've contemplated perfection I've contemplated things that are perfect and I've come to an end on those things he says but I meditate on your commandments and they are exceedingly broad 
Now you think about the law, the holy law of God. And I began to think as I sat at my desk, and I began to think about this funnel. You know what a funnel is. It's got a big end and it comes down, funnels down to a little end. Imagine taking that funnel and putting it over your head. And take that big end. Imagine that thing. You begin to stretch this thing. The big end. You begin to stretch it out to the limits of the broadness of the law. It's like the sky. It just, it just goes on and on and on. The law of God wants everything done perfect. It is thorough. It is exact. It is vast. It is unbending. It just thunders with precision and perfection. What it requires is not just broad. It's exceedingly broad. It's massive. It goes to the heart. It deals with motives. It's not just what you do in action. It's what you do in your mind. It's what you do in the hearts, in the motives, in the desires. It reaches as deep as a man is. Imagine all the righteous perfections of that law. Every minuscule aspect of pleasing God. Which we ourselves have never done. But imagine all that perfection. The total completion of excellence in moral behavior. All that is agreeable and satisfying and desirable to God. All His perfect will kept, honored. All the love for God in every aspect is just the fullness of it. Heart, mind, soul, the will, the motives. Every bit of the completion of that love in all of its proper proportion and, and fullness and affection. And imagine the, the top of that funnel that wide that comprehensive, that full, that vast, that exceedingly broad. And Christ works it all out perfectly. And in a moment, by faith, all that is shoved through that tunnel, that funnel, bam, right on my head. All of it. It's just showered down upon me. That, so that when God views me and He sees me in such a way, that when He thinks about you, He remembers you, He has any concept in His mind of you at all, which is every single moment of every day, He actually sees a sparkling, dazzling, absolutely undefiled purity. What He sees in His estimation is altogether lovely, acceptable, well-pleasing in the sight of the Holy God. This is what it is to become the righteousness of God. In Christ. That's what it is to be saved. To have God reckon that to your account. Where there's nothing. But what we see here is that the Jews, they had altogether different notions about being saved. You can see that in verse 31. Apparently, what Paul is showing us here is that you can attempt to attain righteousness one of two ways. You can attain it by faith, or you can try to attain it by pursuing law. The Gentiles, think about them in all their wickedness and darkness. They heard the Gospel of Christ. Oh, and what a glorious sound it had. 
with all their wretchedness, they heard the gospel and they attained the righteousness because they sought it by faith. They sought it outside of their own efforts and their own work and their own labors and their own efforts. They sought it in Christ. While the Jews, think about them. Back, back in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, you know what it says? They had the worship. They had the temple worship. They had the priesthood. They had the covenants. They had the promises. They had the Word of God. They had the love. God, it was given to them. God spoke to them verbally. They had all these benefits, all these privileges, and they perverted them. And they sought to attain righteousness by the keeping of the law, and they never succeeded in reaching that law. Which means they had never attained to the righteousness that would have been attained had they reached that law. The Jews thought, and thought wrongly, mind you. People have this idea that as long as you seek God, search God, attempt to worship God, that you'll be okay. God will understand in the end. If you're wrong, folks, it's deadly. The Jews were wrong. They thought that they had all sorts of things going for them in their favor that they could offer. They thought that they're being Jews, being circumcised, knowing the law, all their outward attempts. You think about what they did. They prayed. They fasted. They gave alms. They even tied their anise and their mint and their cumin. They were precise in those things. And they thought with all those things... Now look, I don't believe that the Jews thought they were perfect. But they tried. Why, do, why would I say that I don't think that they thought they were perfect? Because they knew the Scriptures. Now, I realize many of them they would read and they wouldn't understand. But they knew that Solomon... Solomon said some very famous words in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. They knew he said that. I mean, really, they would have been a lot, like a lot of people we talk to today. Are you perfect? Well, I'm not perfect. But I'm striving to keep the law. I'm striving to do this. I, I, I'm, seeking, I'm seeking to keep this law. Psalm 143, verse 2. They would have known this too. No one living is righteous before you. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. They knew these verses. But you know what they were like? They were like so many of us. As a Catholic, this is exactly what I was like. It's the whole scale deal. Right? You think... God's got the scale. And I just have to figure out how to do some more good than I do bad. People think that God grades on a curve. They have this idea that, you know, there's, there's the scale. Here's the Jews. They're thinking, there's the scale. Okay, I I'm a Jew. I put that on the good side. Christ is coming from our lineage. We'll put that over there too. I'm in the lineage of the patriarchs. We'll put that over there. We had the worship. We'll put that over there. We have all this. We're, we're those that have the law. We, we put all these over there. You know what that sounds a whole lot like? Philippians chapter 3, when Paul's telling about what he boasted in when he was a Pharisee. And he's putting all this stuff over there. But that's how we are. That's how we are as well. That's, that's how man is by nature. We, just, we have this idea. Hey, 
I went to church Sunday. We'll put that over there. I have a Bible at home. I read it before. We'll put that over there. Um, I didn't swear as much today as I did. We'll put that over there. I mean, we, but we're like that. Oh, man, look at that guy over there. Look at him messing around at work. I'm over here working hard. We'll put that over there. And we like to put all these things over there. And this is what the Jews did, and this is what we do. Put them, pile them. They had their Sabbaths. Put that over there. And they thought, God's going to overlook the bad. I'm not perfect, but I've really tried. And God's going to understand here. He's going to look at... And you know what Paul does? Paul comes in right at this point and he says... It's all rubbish! In Philippians chapter 3, he calls it dung. It's excrement. If you put any trust in any of those things, they are nothing more than excrement. They are filth. They are defiled. They are no good at all. Let me ask you something this morning. If God asked you to put your good deeds on that scale... What are you going to put there? Do you know what? God challenges you to do that. Isaiah 41.21 Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Bring them. What are you going to offer? What are you going to put there? God challenges you to do it. He who sees every motive behind why you have ever said what you've said and done what you've done, He challenges you. Here's the scale. Come on. Put it on there. You know what He says right after that in Isaiah 41? Behold. He sees what you put on there. He looks at it. He says, Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. God challenges every one of us. Bring out just one word that you have spoken. One deed, one action, one thought, one motive. Bring out anything that you have ever produced that you could put on the side of good work. And I'm not talking about what men think is good. I'm talking about what God says is good. What do you have? There's not a thing. Not a single thing. You know what the problem is? The holiest thing you have ever done. You did it as a sinner. And the poison of your sin tainted and permeated every action, every thought that you've had. So if you're going to look at this scale, you have nothing to put on the good side. Nothing. Paul, that's what Paul's been doing in Romans. I mean, in in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's been stripping us of every rag of self-righteousness that we might think we have. He's been tearing it away from us. Show us how vile, 
how full of sin we are, leaving us under this pure and holy spotlight of His Word. All condemned. All are under sin. None does good. Not even one. And He puts us under this thing where He shows us that all of man has sinned. All of them fall short of the glory of God. There's none that seeks after Him. He shows us. He paints this picture of mankind. And He says, away with it. Whatever you, whatever you think you can put there, it's not right. It's not good. It's not wholesome. It doesn't measure up to the standard of perfection in the sight of a holy God. And if you don't measure up, let me tell you something. You're going to be lost. Unless you stand perfect in the sight of God, you are a lost man or woman. There's no hope. Being a Jew doesn't make up for that. I don't care how many times you've been baptized, it doesn't make up for it. You must attain. Folks, that's personal. You've got to do it. It's not enough if your father does it or your mother. It's not enough if your friend does it. It's not enough if the guy next to you in the seat there did it. You've got to, it's a personal possession. You've got to attain it. You've got to seize it. This word could almost be rendered, well it is. It could be rendered attack. It is a word that has that much aggressiveness. The word attain. Seize it. Attack it. Paul is pointing to a deep personal pursuit. That you do. When I talk about faith in Christ, that faith that lays hold on this righteousness of God, I am not talking about the flippant blasphemy that is so common in our country today. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about this nonsense where people speak these empty words they say this little prayer. Oh, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I am talking about with heart and soul and mind and your being, every fiber of your being to laying hold on Christ in desperation. Lord, I'm not acceptable. I've got to find it somewhere else. And where? Where do you grasp? People grasp all over. They grasp over here for Allah. They grasp for the Pope. And they grasp for that good works. And where are they going to find it? Some people, they just bounce from one religion to another. And then, but it's in Christ. And it's talking about with every fiber of your being laying hold on Christ, knowing that if you don't have Him, you're damned. You're doomed. It's no good otherwise. You've got to have Him. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's pursuing Christ until you attain and get in your grip a personal possession of perfect righteousness. That's what it is. And only then, only then do you have any biblical warrant to think you're saved. So Paul's making it perfectly clear here. There are only two ways of attaining to this righteousness. Two possible ways. You obtain it by your own works. 
You strive for it and produce it by your own efforts, your own merit. But if you slip, even just once, that's it. You're done. You're damned. Paul goes to great pains to show us the impossibilities of any attaining a righteousness that way. Romans 3.12 No one does good. Not even one. I'm talking about how man is by nature. In Christ, God enables us to do good. But a lost man cannot. The other way is to receive this righteousness as a free gift that God gives to you. An actual righteousness. It's, look, it's not, just, it's not just a fictional righteousness. It's not just some abstract thing that just... Christ earned this. Christ did this. An actual man, the God-man, came here, put himself under... This is where, this is where the gospel is. It's simple. You need a perfect righteousness. You don't have it. Jesus Christ came. He took upon Himself flesh. He came under the law. Under the law that you were supposed to keep. And He perfectly, He earned it. He merited it. He sweat for it. He worked for it. He bled for it. He died for it. A perfect righteousness. Men, Women, the greatest things that you have to offer God, your greatest, holiest, most righteous things, can I tell you what the Bible says they are? They're just sin dressed up in pretty clothes. And the things that men trust in are the very things that are going to drive them down into destruction. Your Righteousnesses are filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 57, 12. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. You can tell us, oh, how often we have people come in this church. We ask them, are you saved? Are you saved? I remember Matt and I out on the streets one time. We talked to a Methodist girl. Are you saved? I'm in the choir. Do you know what Paul says? Dung. You need a perfect righteousness. Can I tell you something? The righteousness of Christ is personal to every believer. The righteousness of Christ means that when God lets me into heaven, He doesn't do it by dropping the standard. Not at all! He does it by meeting the standard. God's mercy does not ever Set aside or contradict God's justice. It fulfills it. In other words, when God brings a believer to heaven, He does so justly. Look! When I get to heaven, 
I will be able to say, I deserve to be there. Not that I deserve it by the works I did in my life. That's not what I'm saying. Not saying I'll deserve it because of anything I did. If I were get if I if I were to get what I deserve, you know what I'd get. I mean, folks, think about it. What is it that makes us unworthy of heaven? What is it that makes us so much an object of hell? Sin. But when I believed in Christ, where is my sin? It's gone. My surety has paid for it. It's paid. The debt is cleared. God's received the payment at the hand of Christ. My surety. A perfect payment. But more than that, more than just bringing my account to zero and removing the debt I owed, that whole funnel of perfection is showered onto my account. God puts a gold mine of credit All that vastness, all that fulfilling of the law. Look, folks, God looks at His law and looks at me and neither He nor anyone else can bring a single accusation at all. If God were to exclude a poor believer in Jesus Christ, covered by the blood, He would be unjust, utterly unjust. Why? Because He's already accepted the payment at my surety's hand. He cannot exact it from me. It's not possible. Look! If any of you at all go to heaven, It will be because you deserve, by the merits of Christ, mind you, but because you deserve to be there. Romans 5.17 speaks of the gift of righteousness. It's freely given to all who believe. Folks, You've got to understand this. You do not get to heaven without merit. So many people think that God is just too loving. He's too nice. He's too Santa Claus-like to throw sinners into hell. I'm telling you, the only ones who will ever be allowed into heaven merit it. They deserve it. They have the credentials to get there. If you don't have it, God will throw you into the fiery dungeons of hell for certain, as God's Word is certain. You must have merit. You can't merit it in your own works. So I'm telling you, you've got to look outside of yourself to find it. Only two ways, folks. Only two ways. But you know what? The thing is, we're like the Jews. Look at our country. We have Bibles. 
Has not God raised up one prophet after another? One preacher? Pastors? Soul winners? Mighty men of God to walk this country? I don't doubt that we're in a part of the country where the Methodists and the Baptist preachers, circuit riders, probably came down into these parts of Texas. We've had the Word of God preached. How can we get to a place and a time when most of the pulpits in this city are not even speaking about the fact that people need righteousness? And where it's found? How is it that Matt and I can go to a door and we can talk to somebody, talk to them about heaven, about eternal life, about being saved, and all they can say to us is, I go to church, I'm on the choir. Where have we come? We're just like the Jews. I'm not saying this is a Christian nation. I'm not saying that all in this country love the truth of Christ or believe it. But I'm telling you what, this country was reared on the Word of God. And we have seen great awakenings and we have seen revivals and there have been men and there are good churches in this country today. And you think about it. You think about what we have at our disposal. You young people, with a click on your computer, you can find these, these sermons by good and godly men, powerful sermons that have been used of God to bring people to spiritual life. And yet, the majority of the people in this country, what in the world's being taught from the pulpits? I'll tell you what's being taught. Morality is being taught. Be good to the kids. Be good to your co-workers. Be good here. Don't lie. Don't do that. If you don't believe it, you have not been going to any other churches. I'm not saying we're the only church in the land that has the truth. What in the world has happened? I'll tell you what's happening. People are stumbling over the rock of offense. They're tripping on Christ. You remember this. You don't trip on Christ unless He's at your feet, folks. And there's some of you sitting in chairs right here, right now, and that's where you're stumbling. You want something to present to God. You want to make yourself beautiful in His sight. But you're ugly and you're defiled. And unless you're robed with what He has to give, you'll not be accepted. And people trip and they stumble over Christ all the time. And I'll tell you what, there are some of you tripping right now. You know why? Because He stands in the way of your way. He stands in the way of your sin. He stands in the way of your selfishness, of your sexual pleasures. He stands in the way of what you want to do with your life. And you're tripping. But you just remember this. If you trip over Christ, you will fall. And you just remember where you fall to. You know what? That man, that woman, that child that puts their trust in Jesus Christ... That last verse there in Romans 9 says they will not be put to shame. You know what that tells me? You trip over Christ and you fall. You're falling right into shame. Matthew 7. Lord, we're here. We're ready. We're ready to go home to heaven. 
we should tremble. Some of you ready for home. Depart from me. You know who those people are? They're the people that think lightly of sin. They think lightly of God's standard. God gave His law to man. And He means for you to keep it or die. And if you can't keep it, there's one who has. It's there. Some of you are tripping on Christ. All He is is a rock for you to trip over. With all the privileges that our country has had, there is some man, he calls himself a pastor. He's been teaching that girl. She thinks she can get to heaven by being on the choir. That man is going to burn in hell unless God shows him mercy. And he is going to pay for deceiving men and women. Most of the preachers in the pulpits today should not be there. They're not qualified to be there. They're deceiving people. May God purge the pulpits in this land so we can hear about attaining to righteousness again. By faith in the great surety, Jesus Christ, if you stumble, if you're ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of you. Depart. Two ways. only attain righteousness by one of them. Only one. There's only one way. On the merits of Jesus Christ. I could number my sins, folks. I could, num- I could tell you about many of them just since I've been a Christian. That isn't where my trust is. I'm going to be accepted and I am accepted right this moment. Because nothing stands on my record. The blood of Christ has washed it. I have attained righteousness. I've attained it. I'll tell you this, even if I commit murder tomorrow, I've God gives His people a new heart. They don't want to murder. But even if I should fall into the foulest sins, once I've been blood, washed by that blood of Jesus Christ, God looks at me. You remember those words to Christ? It's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Him. And God looks at me and says, well pleased. 
If you're not there, He is not well pleased with you. You are an object of His wrath. And if you stay where you are, you will perish. And that's many of you in this room right now. Do not think church saves you. I'm telling you folks, this is serious. This is life. This is death. This is the Gospel. What a glorious one it is for a sinner to hear. I can go and be accepted and enjoy the eternal pleasures of God Almighty even if I've lived the life of the most wretched, despicable sinner. I can be counted perfect in the halls of heaven based on the righteousness of another. That is Gospel. Amen. You're dismissed.